but uh, that takes a lot of you know chutzpah and a lot of ego integrity to to. I've never heard that, that word. I'm laughing. I love it. Chutzpah. Uh, yeah, it's it's I, I'm th- I'm I'm pretty sure it's a Yiddish word. Hey, I'm so for too. it. I grew I like up in it. New York City. So <laughs> I was about I, to say it's Natalie's New York coming out. Uh, um, like it sounds like a one-stop shop, gas and food. Let's go. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am the podcast editor, Dr. Grace Pratt. I'm behavioral medicine faculty at Integris Great Plains Family Medicine Residency in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We are running a small crew this morning. I have two of my co-hosts here with me, and I'm going to have them introduce themselves. Um, I'm going to kick us off the way we always do with a little bit of an icebreaker question. So I want to know, what's your favorite breakfast food? Monica? Oh, I knew you were going to come to me first. And I'm thinking, I don't like that question. So hello, everyone. Um, Monica Williams-Harrison, licensed clinical social worker, um, as well as CFHA consultant, BHC for Hartford Healthcare in Connecticut. Um, So I don't really like breakfast is the uh, issue like that's not my thing are you so, like a cold pizza for breakfast or just no breakfast at all really just none like I have to wait until around 10 30 maybe 11 to eat so then we're really talking brunch and not really breakfast um I'm just not really a breakfast type person so when we go to the places that are like breakfast all day like people in my family are excited but I'm like give me like the chicken sandwich or something else. like I it's not my thing. So I'm going to really probably just go with fruit because oh, I recognize that breakfast is important. Um, so I am not following the guidelines that I would give to my children. So I'm just going to go with fruit. How about that? Is that, is that okay? Works. Like I'm trying to just throw something out there, but really I'm not the breakfast chick y'all. You know, I'm not a big like diner breakfast person either. And my go-to when I'm with a group of people that are at that kind of place is a BLT because like it's got bacon, it's got toast, but it's savory. Oh, listen, yeah. you can never go wrong with bacon. Just saying bacon is <laughs> good. You're stressed out anything bacon. Yeah. You can never go wrong with that. Add bacon. And if Dolly, how about you? Yeah, see, I'm not I'm on the other side of the spectrum. Like breakfast is is the most important and best meal of the day. Oh, <laughs> see, now you sound like the commercials. <laughs> I'm I mean, I'm all in on Tony the Tiger. I'm all in on uh Fruit Loops, Lucky Charms. I mean, pancakes, waffles, omelet, oatmeal, and raisins. I mean, we just need to take you to a breakfast buffet. Yeah, yes. this is a smorgasbord of. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I genuinely love breakfast. Uh, it is my favorite meal, meal of the day. Uh, it has the most variety of things that I like to eat. Um, yeah. So pretty much almost anything. But I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm like a little kid when it comes to the kind of breakfast foods, right? So I mean, it's not like I'm eating. Uh, pancakes with chocolate chips in them. Like I'm not to that degree or rainbow sprinkle pancakes, which my kids eat, but, but I'm still liking the sweet, sweet and savory type combinations. Okay. But the very tip top favorite would be. Oh man. It just depends on the mood, but I I think probably like French toast, Uh, French toast, eggs and bacon, you know, a good little mix of sweet and salty 
I hear that bacon in there. You hear that? Bacon. <laughs> Got it. Bacon is the theme, I guess. Monica, uh, I thought I thought being from the South, you were going to be talking a little waffle house. Like shrimp house and grits. Oh, waffle house. <laughs> I thought you were going to go like shrimp and grits. I do miss grits, however, because I've not had that since being in Connecticut. But yeah, yeah waffle house is a staple, just not... <laughs> Oh, you know, I don't think of myself as a big breakfast person, but every time you guys have listed something off, I'm like, shrimp and grips. That sounds good. French toast. That sounds pretty good. Maybe I'm just hungry this morning. Yeah. Uh, my absolute favorite, if I could have any breakfast from any place is there is this tiny like bakery that is in a gas station in Texas that's called West Texas. And the gas station is called the check stop. And they have these kolaches that are unlike any kolache that you've ever had, just the dough and the sausage and the cheese. They're so, so good. Um, so if you're ever in South central Texas and you're driving through West, you have to stop at the check stop and get some sausage and cheese kolaches. And what's just, a kolache? Yeah, what is a uh, So a it's kolache? like a roll, uh, a yeasty roll that has, there's fruit kolaches that have like fruit um, and a glaze, but then there's also my favorite, like I said, I like savory food. So they have sausage and cheese kolaches. So it's just like a, a really fluffy yeasty roll with the fillings and they're so good. So if you do stop in West, just take yourself right on up I-35 about seven or eight hours and drop some off at my house. I'm sure that would be convenient for everyone. (laughs) Sounds like a one-stop shop, gas and food. Let's go. It's very good. There's always a line, but they move people through quickly. Anyway, I haven't taken us way off the path talking about breakfast food, Um, but you know, we have a little more time this morning since we're missing our dear friends who weren't able to be here this morning. Um, We are going to talk this morning about leadership um, opportunities for BHCs. You know, we're thinking, we're seeing more and more interdisciplinary growth in healthcare. And that's sort of what we really champion and advocate for at CFHA. And BHCs are taking on more and more of a role, not just in their clinical work, but also in their organizations. So I just want to kind of open this up broadly. Monica, you actually were the one to suggest this topic, and I really appreciate it. And just kind of open up, what are some of the things that come to mind as you guys think about like leadership opportunities for BHCs in healthcare? Yeah, I brought this up because I'm seeing kind of the shift. So, you know, initially I saw a lot of the BHCs who were reporting to like psychiatrist or reporting to a nurse, like, you know, like a lead nurse. And I'm seeing the shift where there are now um, behavioral health directors, as well as BHCs that are becoming a part of head leadership team, kind of over quality. And um, I don't know, I just feel like it is expanding. Um, I think that our place or um, what we bring to the team is being definitely recognized. And we're just seeing BHCs really expand from just clinical practice to really taking on more of those administrative roles, helping guidance around metrics, like our last um, podcast that we had, just really providing more administrative guidance as well. So I find it enlightening. I think it's a shift. Some people may feel like, well, this isn't this how it's always been? But it's not always been that way. And I'm starting to now see more individuals who I initially met as BHCs now moving up in their same level as, you know, the CEO and the COO. And so I think that, you know, that's exciting for me. 
Yeah, a very tangible sign of what you're talking about, Monica, is this year we started with uh, Sandy Blount. For those of you who who don't know Sandy, Sandy's uh, sort of one of the forefathers, I would say, of integrated care, the modern version of integrated care. Um, Been in the field for a very long time, originally at the University of Massachusetts, um, or at least that's where he spent much, much of his career. And so Sandy wanted to start this course to help these cadre of newish behavioral health directors who are being thrust into these roles of leadership in their organizations. You know, and he he would just wanted a small core, about eight people to to be part of this uh, core he would take. And initially I was like, man, we, we may struggle to fill this, you know, uh, we'll see how it goes. But we we started it. We can't, we, we haven't been able to create enough room for all the people we have a wait list at this point for people to join. And he now has several cohorts uh, that he has working through this course that that he has through CFHA. Um, and every time we put something out related to behavioral health directors, it it gets a lot of attention. So I, I totally agree with you, Monica. There's, there's definitely been a shift where uh, folks who were p- potentially originally trained clinically and put into clinical positions are being transitioned into part-time clinical, part-time director, or sometimes full-time director, or those senior leadership roles. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. I think one is there's some obvious content knowledge uh, overlap between the overarching goals of a lot of uh, primary care clinics, and I would say other uh, settings as well, but especially primary care. You know, so if you're if you're in behavioral health, there's significant overlap with social determinants of health. If you're in behavioral health, you typically have some training in. Um, in program development, um, some understanding of organizational dynamics, et cetera. And so there's, there's just overlap between what clinics are needing right now and what skills they see in their behavioral health staff as far as content. And then there's, then there's just sort of the soft skills of leadership and program development and quality that many behavioral health folks also have that uh, clinics are looking for. So I think it's a great thing, but I also I also think that there's a lot of bumps in the road. Like a lot of these directors are not having the best time in the world because it's it's, it's it, you know can be difficult to navigate. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Yeah, just to piggy off the difficulty in navigating, I think that um, similar to those of us who maybe were initially trained in traditional outpatient world, and you kind of have to have a little bit of a mind shift when it came to doing integrated care, right? Like there was a a shift there that needed to happen. The skills were there, but how do you fine tune those? What are the pieces that you pull, the pieces that don't fit so much? Like those pieces, I feel like that's the same challenge that some behavioral health directors or administrators are having with the shift because we have the clinical pieces and, you know, we might have a little bit of program development, but not as much in terms of leadership or supervising other people, right? Like that starts to be where I'm glad that Sandy's doing this because those are the pieces in terms of development that I think are really helpful for those who are struggling with that that shift. Yeah, and it's just, it, you know, there's, there's also just um, navigating. So I think you mentioned a couple of areas, right? So there's leadership skills, there's program development skills, um, there's supervision or slash administrative type skills. And then I think the thing that's most difficult these days for folks is are, are the political skills, um, which maybe you can mix that in with leadership. But uh, I think it's a separate skill set that behavioral health folks really struggle with because the dynamic currently is. So we've got these great 
integrated care teams, but organizations don't really know how to integrate the professionals yet into the organizational hierarchy. So it's not well-established, you know? So if you're going to be a medical director, there's a well-established role for the medical director and the organization knows exactly where you fit in their chain. And there may be issues. There's always issues with, you know, hierarchy and power and things like that, but at least it's established with behavioral health integration. It's often not. The organization doesn't know where to put you. You know, they, sometimes they'll put you in population health over here, um, or they, they'll put you over there in case management or social work or, you know, whatever it is, or they'll put you under the CMO. And so organizations don't know how to handle it. And then it falls on the behavioral health director to basically carve out that space in the organization and say, this is where we belong. This is how we fit. But uh, that takes a lot of, you know, chutzpah. And a lot of ego integrity to, to. I've never heard that happen. word. I'm laughing. I love it. Oops. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm, th- I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a Yiddish word. Hey, I'm for it. Too. I grew I like up in it. New York City. So <laughs> I was about I, to say, it's not always New York coming out. Um, I like it. You know, it's just such a parallel process. I'm struck as you're talking about this, even when we're talking about, okay, what does it look like to go into a traditional medical environment and say, we need behavioral health services. And then you have to carve out that space and you have to convince people of your worth. And then no one quite knows what to do with you. And I think there also is a, you know, frequently like, a well, that sounds like a great idea in theory, but practically, I don't know, or there's no money or I don't, whatever barriers come up. And then we're talking about a really similar structure when you start moving into leadership phase of, you know, we were talking about there's leadership over like the behavioral health domain, but then there's also other roles of leadership in the organization. And I think it's a lot of times not if, if all of the leadership is, you know, nurses and physicians and, you know, more of a traditional, what you would expect or what the organization has always had when they're looking around and looking for, okay, who are we going to move into these roles? They're probably not thinking to even look at the behavioral health team. And so it's this matter of we defining our, our role, defining our strengths, defining what we can do, but then it mirrors what has to happen at the clinical level when we're talking about this operational and, you know, financial and organizational level as well. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that I I find myself doing a lot of coaching with BHCs, especially early in their careers, to so that they take an active role in that regard and not just expect it to happen. Because I have seen situations where BHCs are in organizations that are not terribly progressive; they're being a little bit passive, and then they get frustrated as they get beyond their early early career stage um, because they they don't have any advancement opportunities. You know, they're, they're still stuck in the same clinical role that they started out in. They're, they're not um, given space to do program development, et cetera. And um, yeah, there's some organizations that are progressive. That they're just going to see your talent and they're going to say, yeah, we want more of this. Help us build this. And then there's organizations where you're going to have to understand how to maneuver politically in that organization. You're going to have to understand how to make relationships, foster those and cultivate those relationships. Uh, advocate for yourself, uh, put together data. If, if data is the thing you think it's going to uh, move things in your organization, put together the right stories. If stories are the thing that you think are going to mo- make uh, help move things in that organization, be persistent, You know, put yourself out there. All these things that really just take intentionality to, to make happen. So 
you know, BHCs find themselves in very, very different types of situations and, and, and folks in, in their careers find themselves in many different situations. I've been in situations where I'm coaching someone. I'm like, Hey, you know, you've tried everything you've tried at this organization. This is what the space are going to give you. So now your decision is maybe you either, you either are okay with this or you, or you move on to someplace else that, that maybe has more of a space carved out for you. Yeah. The, the maneuver politically that could be a real challenge. You know, you feel like you know what needs to happen, but there are a lot of politics in play and learning when to push and when to pull back and picking and choosing battles. Um, sometimes I call it like playing nice in the sandbox. Like you, it is really a art to that that does not come easy for a lot of people. Yes, so I did not intend for this when I planned this conversation today, but I feel like I'm getting a little bit of personal advice and encouragement from you guys, even <laughs> in this moment, as someone who is, you know, I'm at the end of the early part of my career. I'm moving into, it's been, um, I've been seven years in my role. It's been like 10 years since I got my master's degree and, and you know, went through the PhD, but I'm moving into, okay, what is the middle stage of my career going to look like? And we've been working on a massive grant proposal and a big idea of developing a center for provider resilience who would serve not just our organization, but our state. And it is this matter of, I, those are not skills that come very naturally to me, you know, being a connector and advocate and communicator, those are skills that I have, but it's the, the pushing past when someone says, well, that's a great idea, but it's the pushing past the, but that's just, it's like scary and it's, um, yeah, it is. it's really kind of hard to keep. And I think for me, what has helped me, you know, this center is still a hypothetical completely for me right now. So I'm really in the weeds of this. Um, but what has helped me has been looking around to see who my allies are, you know, who does believe in this mission and then reminding myself of the vision and the purpose of the goals of this. So like, I need to believe my own story, um, before I can help bring other people to see and to believe in it as well. And I'm saying that almost as a mantra, repeating it to myself, trying to convince myself of it. Cause it is it's real, it's a big challenge. And then of course there's, you know, I, I don't know, of course, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but there's, you know, a healthy dose of imposter syndrome thrown in. I told a friend of mine that I'm careening wildly between feeling very empowered and excited. And like, I could, and the perfect person to do this work to who am I to even think that this is a possibility. Um, so it's, yeah, I need this conversation. <laughs> I don't think you're alone in the imposter syndrome. Um, I, I hear it a lot. Like we kind of start to second guess ourselves. Like, should I really be at this table? Um, yes, you should be at the table. Most definitely. And it doesn't mean that you have all of the answers. Um, one of the things that it made me think of, um, Grace, when you were talking, I remember initially when I would hear the but, I would be like, but, well, rah, right? Like, what are you talking about? Like, no, like this and this and this, and this is why, blah, blah, blah. And it took me a while to kind of sit, what I would call sitting back in the cut, like sit back and listen to how things play out and figure out how I could tie in to something that someone else was mentioning that aligned. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's finding, finding those alignments and making those connections for people that don't necessarily come up for them. Like, oh, this is how behavioral health engages with this, right? Um, so sometimes it's 
sitting back in the cutter, coming the back doorway to still get where I want it to be. But initially I was definitely the raw, what are you talking about? But like, no, like we are here and here's what we're supposed to be doing. See, it, it's so much personality, I think, because I hear the bat and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you went the opposite direction. <laughs> yes. And so I have to like, kind of look inward for a minute and say, okay, but, and like, you know, come back with my answer that. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I was reflecting on what you were saying, Grace, and I was like, yeah, I think you're speaking to what a lot of people in leadership especially people who haven't envisioned themselves or leadership is not necessarily part of their identity, right? Um, what they feel. Um, and I echo what Monica says, because I think, you know, I'm, I'm a big subscriber to the theory that, that leadership is uh, something that everyone has a capacity for on some level, right? I mean, nearly all of us exert leadership in some area of our lives. We're parents, uh, we're we're mo role models, we're supervisors at work, we're colleagues who have expertise in certain sphere, whatever it is. But it's very common for us to look at other people and think, oh, that person has it together. They deserve to be there. I don't think I deserve to be there. I, how how can I, you know, feel that way? And I get the sense that a lot of people think that about me because of what, um, you know, my my role is and and all that. But the truth now is, you know, you're a superstar, Neftali. Come on. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm know. thinking on Neftali because we were at a conference one year and I was talking with a um, conference attendee and Neft walks up and I'm like, hey, Neft. He's like, hey, listen, I want to tell you real quick, blah, blah, blah. And then he walks off and the person was like, oh, you know, Neftali. And I was like, um, <laughs> yeah. And so after that, I just started calling him Rockstar. <laughs> Yeah, and I love hearing that. that I, so I wish good. that I wish your facial expression could come across <laughs> yeah. to our listeners. It's just like, oh. well, but, but it's yeah, gonna be interesting to hear. Like, like people do see, like, oh my gosh, like he's right. the idiot of CFHA. They know all of the, um, you know, the virtual platforms you had and the videos. Like people reference those and the literature all the time. So it actually would be good to know, like when you started, like how were things for you? Were you more like me, like raw or like Grace, like, wait a minute, I don't know. Like, am I at the right table? Yeah, and I, I wouldn't even say just when I started. I, I think there's still to this day, I think I think what, what I um, experienced in my transition from sort of clinician, to program development, which actually happened very early on. I mean, I was at the stage where when you got thrown in, you were the director from day one, even though you were the only person doing the thing, right? Um, and I mean, I was scared shitless. I mean, I, I was so petrified of what I was doing. But I think, um, you know, Grace, what you said is what definitely carried me is I believed so much in this thing and I was so turned on by this idea that we could bring medicine and behavioral health together and really help people. And in particular, my heart has always been with uh, the underserved. And so, you know, being in that setting gave me the courage I needed to step beyond that self that I envisioned myself to be, that more limited sense of self, and to do things and try things, 
that did feel uncomfortable and stretching and at the end of the day left me exhausted. So for example, one of the things that that's, uh, people often find surprising when I tell them is I am primarily an introvert. I'm an introvert who can do extroverted things. So my job leaves me pretty exhausted because there's so much extroversion that I have to apply on a daily basis. I have to manage it really well to function well. And early on in my, my early BHC days, this was now literally 21, 22 years ago, I literally would go home after a day of, of you know, advocating one-on-one with a physician and trying to build relationship, having a conversation with the CMO or the CEO around a particular topic. Um, plus, you know, seeing all the patients uh, that day and maneuvering relationships with MAs around rooms and things like that, right? All these things that stretched me as a as an introvert because I'm having to deal with people who could potentially say no to me, right? And for an introvert, that's tough, right? When someone says no to you, right? You have to kind of work through that. I would go home and I'd be I'd just be flat out exhausted every day for several years straight, you know, that's just how it was. Can you get to the encouraging part of this, please? (laughs) It sounds sad, doesn't it? It's coming. I feel it. I feel it's coming. It's it's not just coming, but it's there. It was in that moment because at the same time I was exhausted, but exhilarated at the same time. I was energized because I felt like I was doing the right thing. And then, um, and then what happened was I started to believe in some of these skills that I could put put into place, put into practice. So I started to believe in my ability to advocate for myself, to advocate for behavioral health. I started to um, use some of that political capital that I was able to build uh, through these relationships and forge relationships with people at the senior leadership level. Um, and then over time, that sense of self uh, expanded. So I was able to be able to say, okay, no, I can lead. I do have skills in leadership and have a sense of confidence around that and be able to, to say that out loud, even. You know, always with a sense of humility, however, understanding that this is a stretch for me. Like this is tough. You know, when I got the job here at CFHA, same thing. This was a new thing. I'd never been a CEO of a nonprofit member association, whole new skills, leading all these smart people, uh, who 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 many of whom are much better than me at all the things they're doing, research and in academic medicine and whatever it is. Uh, But, you know, if you allow yourself to be stretched at your edges enough, you begin to be able to live into sort of the the big boy pants, right? It doesn't feel comfortable initially, but eventually you do get to that place where you feel more comfortable. But you never, ever escape that feeling of of not having it all together. That's just something you learn to live with. That's just part of leadership. You just never learn to feel... 100% 100% comfortable and feel like, oh, I got this, you know, I'm, you know, now nah, it's just, it never gets there, but, but you get more comfortable f- with that feeling, I think is, is where I'm at. See, there's the positivity there, Grace. Yeah. I actually yes. uh, definitely agree with um, Naftali and you too, Grace, your initial kind of have to really believe in what you're doing. I think that helps you with the grit um, to keep going, even when you hear the butts and the nose um, and you you see the needle move and you see it come back a little bit, right? Like that grit and drive to keep to keep going is there. I too am an introvert. People never believe that of me either, but same thing. So I completely get um, what Natalia is talking about and having to schedule that time to kind of replenish before going back out to do the extroverted things. The thing that I will say um, that does help me because I do still have that imposter syndrome 
um, when pulling up to the table with new challenges and things that I haven't tried before of um, should I be at the table? Like, do I have the skill set as a person of color? Is this like a, a pity invite, right? Like all of these things come up in my mind. And um, not only understanding that I might not have it all, who am I surrounding myself with that has the other part that I don't have, right? So I will say to individuals all the time, like research is not my thing. I believe it is valid. It is needed, like all of that. But when it gets down to it, it is not my thing. But who do I know or who can I connect with where it is their thing and I could gain some insight and add on to my skill set by connecting with other people? Or if there's no one that I know, well, does anyone that I know know someone, right? Like that important, uh, the importance around connecting with other people um, and, and building your social, social capital or social network, so to speak, from that standpoint. Um, I will say having certain individuals around me has, has really helped. Um, when I decided that I was gonna join um, the National Association of Social Workers Board, that was a big stretch for me. And there were people around me going, oh my gosh, you should totally do it. Yes, you could do it. When I was asked to join the podcast, I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Well, mm, y'all could use a couple people of color. I don't know, right? Like that whole thought process in my head, but having people go, no, like you should totally do it. Like just try it and see, right? Um, I think that that's important to have people around you who have experienced it, or even if they haven't, could possibly connect you to others so that you can build upon your skill set where you feel like you may have a deficit and you may find you don't have the deficit you thought you had. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the, the thing that resonates so much with what you said, Monica, is community. You build your sense of self in community. That's, that's where your best self is going to come from. It's not going to come from you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, doing it all on your own and sitting in a room trying to convince yourself you can do it. No, it's, it's, it's putting people around you and finding that community around you that is going to reinforce your best self out there. And it's going to help you through the very difficult times. Sometimes that your career might have um, as, you, as you go through changes um, or in uh, certain organizational challenges that you might have. I want to put a pin in something else you mentioned that I was going to talk about as well, which is you know, the unique challenges that people of color and women face in these, in this developmental process. Um, because that, I think that's worth mentioning and talking about that, you know, so much of what's helpful in our career development is seeing models and seeing others who've paved the way before us. And um, I can just say for myself, I was not only the first person to graduate anything in my family, but I had no models for what it meant to be a Hispanic in psychology, let alone a Hispanic in integrated care. And I found that that was also true for any of the, many of the other minorities that I would train and hire, whether they be African-American or, uh, uh, you know, international um, uh, students or um, even women oftentimes, even though there certainly are women in these fields, this sense of like having that career ladder to climb didn't seem to be a natural thing there. It didn't feel like that was almost like, okay. And I, I would find myself having to really give people permission and say, no, you can advocate for yourself. No, you, this is a path you can take. This is a path that's uh, made for you too. And so I, I think if, if there's folks out there who are in any of those categories, um, you know, I just want to encourage you to take heart that 
some of that resist, that feeling you have is real. Like that feeling of being out there on your own and feeling a little bit sort of naked, um, vulnerable. Uh, that's a real feeling that, that you're not alone in. Um, many of us in these sort of situations have felt that um, as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's one of the reasons why, again, things like the, the ELO at the conference for behavioral health directors, I think, is helpful to be amongst other individuals. But the part that you're bringing up in terms of um, being a, a minority, it's an additional challenge because there is no blueprint, right? And then you're like, oh, well, crap, I have to create the blueprint. How do I make sure I'm doing it right? Does it look like is the blueprint the same like the other people who are sitting at this table that I'm trying to get to? And it might not look like theirs and that's okay. But it's that permission, that permission to do it. I was going to say permission to fail, but I, I don't feel failure as like um, it's traditionally defined as like, oh, that's it. You messed up, right? That permission though, to, to not get it right in like the world doesn't end because you didn't get it right or you didn't create the blueprint the way that somebody else created it. Um, but I do still struggle with, there aren't a lot of examples and that's hard. That's, that's really hard when there are not a lot of examples. And sometimes you see it, you see like, oh my gosh, like, wait, it's all men. There's no, no women, right? Like you see it and you recognize that it doesn't feel good, but then you're not sure where to start or where to begin to, to make a change and for that to be different. Um, and there are opportunities, you know, I've, I've seen where, CFHA is posted for people to be on the board, right? And I'm sure there are individuals going, mm, I don't know, I probably probably shouldn't be at that table. I don't have what it is to be at that table. And that's probably not the case. No, I'm pretty sure all the board members put their pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I appreciate sort of the, the reminder for me and I think for all of us to remember that what we see on the outside and what we assume about someone's internal world or skill set or the path that they got them there is not always, well, it's never the full picture and it's not always accurate at all. Um, just recognizing that, you know, the feelings of is this right? Am I supposed to? All of that is so common and so normal. And it's not a sign that you're doing something wrong or that you're not equipped, uh, but it is an opportunity to sort of reaffirm and like connect with that meaning and belief and um, that mission and vision that you have. Yeah. And, you know, one very tangible skill that um, folks have to learn is, is how to deal with money. So, um, I'll bring this up also in the context of, of folks in categories that are not well represented in medicine or, or behavioral health, right? So I've found that um, persons of color and women in particular have a, a hard time negotiating their own salaries. And again, a lot of that's just is the lack of models, right? And then also the sort of the the systems in place that are sort of built around a, a certain way of being and a certain way of advocating for yourself that is, let's just say, sort of white European male primarily, right? And so then it makes sense if you, if you think about it, if you're a person of color or a woman in that situation feeling slightly vulnerable to begin with as far as your own sense of self and identity, in a system that kind of has this feel to it, that it would feel very difficult to 
go to a superior and say, hey, I'm worth this much, right? So I've had to do a lot of coaching and my life say, no, you are a valuable commodity to the health system and you need to act like a valuable commodity and you put yourself out there in a way that, that um, directly shares, this is a value I bring to your organization. This is what I think I can do. This is what the market looks like. This is what I think I'm worth. Um, and I think that's a skill that, that uh, we ought to be teaching actively, um, all of our students, but particularly folks who find themselves in, in any category, uh, underrepresented category in a, dis in a discipline or a profession, so that they can go out there into the world with confidence and, and establish a market that is uh, fair and, and equitable, basically. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always astounded me, particularly, I would say, uh, moms in particular, I'm not patting myself on the back here at all. But it, a lot of this came out of my own experience of, of raising, I raised all my kids, obviously, but like, I stayed at home with my first child, who's the most difficult of all our kids for a few years while my wife was in residency. And that gave me such an insight into moms and what moms have to deal with on a day in day out basis. And the skill set that they have to bring that from that point forward, I was like, I am hiring moms because moms work like crazy. They know how to get stuff done. They, they have their priorities straight. They don't mess around. You know, they're going to be loyal. They're going to all these attributes, right. That they bring. And at the same time, I'd find that a lot of times moms would have a hard time advocating, even though they're great leaders, great skills, but it's like this feeling of vulnerability, right? Because you know, you've got these other competing priorities and you feel bad sometimes that sometimes those priorities inter may interfere with your work or you feel like it may take from your work. The truth is from the employer side, we're getting buku benefits from hiring moms and, and the, all the skills they bring, the dedication, all that stuff that I talked about. So when I realized that, I would start like talking to moms like, no, you, you bring a tremendous amount to our organization. You are valuable. You being a mom is part of that. So we need to, we need to value that, uh, you know, along with everything else. So it's all these categories that like, I think we need to be pushing and advocating for so that these folks can not drop out of leadership, for example, or, and not, not, you know, be perpetually undervalued in our health systems. Well, I appreciate that you say that, Nafali, and I don't, I want for everyone to share that perspective. I think like as a mom who's, you know, working to move into and working in some leadership roles, I always second guess a little bit. So I sent a text to our team last night and said, Hey, I'm going to have to post some stuff after bedtime tonight about the podcast for tomorrow. And I thought twice before I said that just because you know, sometimes I feel like, well, nobody wants to hear about my kids or nobody wants to hear how about how busy I am, but it is, you know, a part of authentically who I am and what I'm managing. So I appreciate that you have that perspective and I, you know, hope that we can continue to affect that change in every place that everyone can see and appreciate that. Well, I did not mean to turn this into my personal therapy session. <laughs> hey, you are not alone. There are many of us that took something away from this. Don't you worry. I, love what this conversation turned into. And I think there are so many pearls for our listeners, regardless of what stage I loved how, um, you know, we've said that leadership is something that everyone has potential and in to step into, and that there is a circle of influence, no matter what your role is, and that you deserve a seat at the table. And if you're doubting that that's not something unique to you, but is 
experienced across the spectrum. And that part of the solution to that is to build your community, find your allies, believe in your mission and purpose, and also advocate for yourself and learn to ask for what you're worth and to step into that, you know, with confidence. So I just, the community of being here in conversation with both of you has given me a lot of encouragement today. And I appreciate that. Um, I, we are out of time for our main spot. I really like always, I always come into this thinking, I'm not sure exactly where our conversation is going to go. And then when we have to stop, I think we could talk about it all day. Uh, but we, you know, CFHA believes in building leaders and offering education opportunities and collaboration and community opportunities for leaders. And we think BHCs are important piece of that leadership structure in healthcare. And so we just hope that after this podcast, that we could continue this conversation on our listserv, that you would join us for some of our different educational opportunities for our conference and our ELOs. Um, and we will just, you know, continue building the leaders in this space and in healthcare. For our special segment today, we're going to go to, before we close out our podcast, I have one last collaborator on our podcast, a feature. Uh, so I had a conversation with Natali, and we're going to play that now. Hi, Natali. Thank you for joining me. Um, I wonder, since this is kind of your spotlight segment, if you wouldn't mind giving a little bit longer introduction to yourself and your background than we usually do at the beginning of the podcast. Sure. Yeah. So um I feel older and older every time I, I give my bio sketch. So I've been a practicing psychologist for 20 years, licensed in 2001, and been in primary care the entire time. I fell into a job right out of school um, at, on the west side of Chicago at a federally qualified health center. Um, that was my first exposure really to integrated care or whatever integrated care was at that time. I had no clue. Uh, took a lot of lumps. Uh, learned a lot, uh, failed very fast uh, during that time, uh, but it was fantastic. It was awesome. I, I just fell in love with primary care, uh, fell in love with community, and uh, just really was completely turned on. I, I often describe it as uh, it saved my career because um, I really, and I'm not sure I would have made it as a specialty uh, mental health uh, professional. And so since then, yeah, I've been working, I worked at two different federally qualified health centers, one in Chicago and then one in Madison. And then when we moved here to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where my wife and family are, um, I started a very small PCBH-ish practice at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, so that's where I keep my clinical uh, skills up uh, these days. And then uh, about six years ago, I also fell into this job. The serendipity of life, you know, when you just keep doing what you feel like is important to do, um, opportunities open up. And this, which really I would say is, if not my dream job, pretty close to my dream job. I think the only other thing I could say that would be my dream job is like driving an ice cream truck. Um, I just love the idea of giving kids ice cream. Uh, <laughs> so that would be my retirement plan. But uh, yeah, CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association for the last six years, really just supporting and cheerleading uh, other people doing this work. So that's that's a little uh, a quick sketch of a of a lot of a lot of years of work. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because what we're going to talk about for the spotlight segment is more about kind of the consulting role that you sometimes mm -hmm. take on. And I want to ask you about kind of what makes someone successful in that role. But I think 
one of the things you're going to say is that the experiences that you've had and the places that you've been are a rich part of what you carry into consulting. So that background is a really helpful kind of transition into this conversation. So you didn't mention consulting before. Could you tell us a little bit about that part of your role and what that's been like for you? Yeah, absolutely. So because it was so early at the time, ideas around integrated care have been around for many, many years. In fact, if you look at the incorporation papers, a lot of people don't know this, but the incorporation papers for CFHA um, have the organization incorporated by Don Block, the one of the originators of the organization, in 1975. That's the I year. definitely did not know that. <laughs> yes. Um, so the organization didn't form uh, really until the 90s, but um, it was it was that bit. So the ideas have been around there. But when when I started, it was still so early on in terms of any of the developments around real world practice in a, on a large scale level, right? And so. Uh, I was at the sort of the, the initial vanguard of this iteration of people working on integrated care. By 2005, um, I had all this experience behind me of, uh, like I said, failing a lot, but also having successes, learning, growing. And so people started asking me for uh, help. They started, oh, you're doing this and, you know, can you help us? And that's where this uh, sort, of, sort of consulting thing, I, I initially did it for free. I would just let, you know, just say, you know, yeah, sure, I'll help you. And then uh, sometimes I would take a trip out to their clinic and help them get things going. After a while, I knew that wasn't sustainable. So I started my own uh, consulting practice called primarycareshrink.com. And at that time, I also realized that there were very few resources, like all the books that we know of now and take for granted, all the literature that we take for granted now wasn't there. So I, I had started a YouTube channel as part of that as well, just answering the basic questions that people would ask me over and over and over again on that. And I, I would say that most people today know me because of those YouTube videos. Like I, I get people all the time saying, oh, you're the guy in the videos. Oh, wow. You know, kind of a thing, which is hilarious to me because like those are like me in my basement or me on my porch, you know, just like taking 15 minutes to answer a question, you know. Um, and so that was a genesis of just getting into this idea of helping and coaching other, other folks. What I realized was that a lot of the skills that I had as a behavioral health professional really translated pretty well to coaching and consultation, not surprisingly. So can you say some more about that? I'm curious to hear about how is the consultant role similar and different from, I mean, we know BHC is where many different hats, but how does it, where's the overlap and where's the difference? Well, the overlap is that, um, you know, when you engage a technical assistance uh, client, it's, it's very much like engaging a patient. They're in a certain stage of change, and your job is to match that stage of change, make an assessment of where they need to go next, and uh, hopefully help them create a plan to get there, Right, so there's a lot of that piece, and then the other piece that, that has a lot of overlap is um, sort of the systems piece. So if you're a good systems thinker and you understand, and when I would say systems, I, I would I would include both like family systems and systems thinking in general. If you have that background, it really helps you get a sense of the dynamics of relationships and and the way that relationships are organized in that system. And then that helps you understand, for example, why a system has had trouble integrating behavioral health in the past, right? You see the dynamics of, and the constraints in the relationships, for example. You see where the incentives are aligned in a uh, organization. You understand the politics. 
So th there's a lot of overlap as far as you're being able to be aware of that. And then hopefully in, in a strategic and tactful manner, being able to coach people along those lines. Where it's different is that, um, well, I don't even know if it's that different, but an organization doesn't see themselves as a patient and they don't always know that they need help. A lot of times, as, as crazy as that sounds, right? Because they actually are accessing your help, but a lot of times they don't really know that they need the help well, that you're giving them. Or they want help with this one thing over yes, there, but then you go right. in and start looking around and are like, hey, we should also pay attention to this. No, 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 no. That's not the thing we want to change. <laughs> that's exactly right. Which yeah. sounds just like families, just like you that's said, it. you know, Absolutely. there yeah. are lots of different people in the system. They're in different places and you have to learn to navigate those relationships. Um, do you have a story that you could tell us about some of your consulting work that you'd be willing to tell on air? Yeah. Oh man. There's so many stories. I'm not going to tell a, a particular story, but I will talk about themes mm -hmm. across these many, many, I mean, I've had um, probably over a hundred plus uh, clients that I've worked with over years. And I, I think, I mean, much like therapeutic work, it definitely takes a whole lot of patience and understanding. So there's many, many instances where um, I will go into a situation and the sort of the identified patient is um, let's the, the behavioral health program, right? Let, let's get this behavioral health person onboarded and, and working. And I go in and I realize, oh my goodness, this organization is just a, a mess. And, and that's really what's constraining uh, what's going on. And after a while, that, that poor behavioral health professional quits. And so then we're, we're, we're back to square one, right? And it's at that point that I have to really just sort of talk to the organization, be honest and say, hey, there's, there's some real reasons why this happened, right? Let's take a look at that so we don't you know, recreate the same situation with the next person who comes in. So that that's a pretty common, unfortunate aspect that that is often it's not like it's not in the literature anywhere, right? And it applies to every model you can think of, right? You could be doing COCM, same thing's going to happen. You could be doing PCBH, same thing's going to happen. You can start an MAT program, same thing's going to happen. Um, so there's there's often a lot of that. The other common theme that I get in my interactions is around when there's existing specialty mental health services at the clinic and they're trying to develop a specialty service. I always groan inwardly when that's the case because um, inevitably what the clinic is trying to do is maybe get some of their specialty mental health people to then staff the primary care clinic and play this in-between role in addition to their specialty mental health role, which almost never works uh, because the professional is just not able to you know, kind of blend both worlds and there's confusion in the clinic as to, you know, what's the priority here, special amount of health or integrated care and where do we send patients and all that kind of a thing. Um, and then, and then if there's like a behavioral health uh, director of that special amount of health services, often a tug of war between them and the medical director, and it just becomes this whole um, sort of uh, internal battle that, you know, drains uh, the efforts to integrate care. But I've had all sorts of things happen. I've had, you know, the CEO fired at the clinic that I was working at, and we've got to go back to square one with uh, new leadership or come back in six months and, uh, you know, kind of revisit uh, the work. I've had um, candles at the board level that have, you know, uh, derailed efforts. You know, I've, I've had clients who just dropped off the map, just like, you know, just where'd they go? 
what are they doing? They gave us money. And then, you know, <laughs> like literally we have their money. You know, it's like, you know, so there's all sorts of things that, that happen that you don't anticipate that are, have nothing to do with the technical aspects of, of how do you integrate uh, behavioral health into primary care. <laughs> it's such a parallel process, right? I mean, just everything you're saying, all the layers of it, because you were saying, you know, when they want you to come in and fix behavioral health, but there's other stuff. It's like the parent that says, fix my kid. My family's fine. Don't talk to me, but fix my kid. And then, you know, when we try to work within a clinic and then things just fall off, we've got to have that sustained progress towards change. Like we work with, with patients. So I love that these examples was because I think it's such a great illustration of how we can apply the skill set that we have. So I was wondering, you know, if someone's listening to this and thinking, I know some things about that. Maybe I have something I could offer as a consultant. Do you have any advice or recommendations for someone who's wanting to move into a consulting space? Yeah. So uh, one very practical advice would be to join CFHA's list of, of consultants. Um, so if you go to the website, integratedcareconsultation.com, um, there's a place there where you can submit your application to uh, be one of our consultants. And then what happens is we, we get referrals from clients who, who want help. And then we will often outsource that some of that work to our member consultants. So that's one thing. But I think in general, I would suggest that uh, folks try to get some early experience, maybe by pairing up with another more experienced consultant. We've got lots of folks in CFHA who do this sort of work on an on-the-side uh, gig basis. And if you can get with one of those folks and get a little bit of experience under your belt, that's helpful because um, obviously it, it, it gives you some credibility as you try to engage new folks um, to, to get that work done. And I think usually folks, the best way to do is to look locally for the first client. So you're not going to start like getting national clients and exposure when you start off. You start off with the folks most close to you. So you may know of local organizations and start consulting there, um, have relationships there, get those under your belt, gives you that experience. And then um, you can, if you really want to, you can grow the business as much as you want to grow. The last thing I would say is it's not easy. Um, so it's, it, it's A, it's not easy to create a full-time job out of this. There's plenty of work, but it's just it's tough to sustain the marketing, the business plan behind it. You know, I, I, when I had my consulting business, I had an LLC and I um, had to have some good accounting procedures in place to make sure everything was up to speed and I could do my taxes and, you know, feel good about them uh, at the end of the year. So there's, that takes effort and work. So if you're trying to do this and a full-time job, just understand that that's, that's not... Um, and most people end up doing it as a side gig, not as, as their main thing. And the other folks usually join an organization, a larger consulting group or something like that, if they're going to try to make this a full-time thing. Well, I really appreciate your blend here of practical advice and also just thinking um, more broadly about what consulting can look like. So thank you for this time, this conversation. And like I said, I love how it fits into our larger picture this month of talking about leadership and integrated care, because this is definitely a step into leadership. Thank you so much. Thanks, Grace. Thank you, Naftali. And thank you, Monica, also both of you for being here with me today. Um, although he was unable to join us for the main podcast today, Deepu did record a, a closing meditation for the month. So we're going to go to that now. Courage is contagious. A courageous leader is what we all aspire to be. And in that process, 
there's a lot that goes into taking care of yourself and also allowing opportunities to be vulnerable. I leave you with two quotes from Brene Brown's work on leadership, on vulnerability, and self-compassion. She reminds us, The courage to be vulnerable is not about winning or losing. It's about the courage to show up when you cannot predict or control the outcome. And in regards to self-compassion, she says, Talk to yourself the way you'd like to talk to someone you love. Most of us shame, belittle, and criticize ourselves in ways we never think of doing to others. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to our community in this organization. And we'll see you next month. Bye, everybody.